um, whatever God is sharing with you, you can write on the back. So I want to read all 10 verses this morning. Psalm 112, verse 1 begins with, praise the Lord. That's New King James. Your Bible might say, hallelujah. Hallel means to praise. Yah or Yahweh, praise God, praise the Lord. And then a beatitude, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. And here's the payoff, his descendants will be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed, wealth and riches will be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Unto the upright or the righteous there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious, he is full of compassion and righteous. A good man deals graciously and lends, and he will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he will never be shaken, and the righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He will not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. The wicked will see it and be grieved. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked, the Bible says, shall perish. I want to talk to you all this morning about the payoff of serving God. The payoff of serving God. Now I already thought through what some of you might think. Well, Pastor Bob, I don't serve God for what I get out of it. I love God. He's everything to me. I don't care if God never blesses me. I could live in a dorm room the rest of my life and be content because I love God and I really don't need anything from him. And I'd be the first to agree with you, right? Especially on the dorm room idea. I am so ready to move into a dorm and stop giving half of my paycheck to Home Depot. When I got saved in my early 20s, it was radical, right? God transformed my life. I was like the proverbial parable where Jesus said it was like a man who found a treasure in a field and then went and sold everything he had to buy that field. I, all I knew was God was real. I was changed. I was free. I was telling everybody I never considered what I could get from God. In fact, salvation is kind of the opposite, right? There has to be a poverty of spirit, a brokenness where you realize you have nothing to contribute, that we're sinners, and it's all about Jesus and what he did on the cross, and it's finished. So we come in like the man the, you know, who beat his chest, the publican, and we come in, and God saves us. But it doesn't take long walking with God or reading the Bible to understand that God, like any good parent and any good father, longs to bless his children. You can't get away from it. His desire is that we prosper and grow in life, and he has our best intentions in mind. Now, I have four children. Three of them are raised, and they're out making their mark in the world. And I'm not concerned about their cars, careers, all the toys we think about. I'm not concerned about their prosperity in that sense. But I'm concerned about their state of their being, the state of their soul. Do they realize why they were put on this planet? Are they walking in their giftedness? That, that's what adult parents pray for, uh, for their children. And so here it says that God cares that we live in this state of what's called blessedness. That it's a privilege to walk with God. Jesus said it this way in John 10.10, 10, I have come that you might have life and that more abundantly. 
And what he was drawing from is the wisdom of these psalms. We've looked at lament psalms, we've looked at praise psalms, now we're looking at a wisdom psalm. And Psalm 112, if you noticed, when I read it, reads so much like Psalm 1. Where it begins with the same beatitude, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, he doesn't stand in the path of sinners, nor uh, does he sit with uh, mockers or scorners, but his delight or his joy is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates in it day and night. Same thing Paul just sang in uh, verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 112, the man who fears the Lord and delights in his commandments. Doesn't say he endures God's commandments. It says he fears God and delights in his commandments. This is the man who respects God and his ways. And in many ways, it's a psalm of contrast. There's, a, there's the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. The way of the person who respects and fears God and the person who just casts aside God's commands. Think back to the garden. And God, in his benevolence, gave Adam and Eve all the trees to eat of. And Eve didn't respect God nor his ways. In fact, she bought into the lie that freedom lied outside of God's boundaries and borders. She didn't look at God as a benevolent father who would set limits on our freedom because some things aren't good for us. And so she reached across the aisle, went outside of God's commands, thought she would find life on the other side, and it wreaked havoc in her soul, and it's wreaked havoc in millions of souls ever since. Now, we all know we're in this brutal election season, and I do mean brutal. If you watch the debate Monday, I mean, come on, guys. I, I actually watched it with the same guys I watch football with. We had like a debate party. And I found out from my daughter in New York, there were debate parties all over New York. And that's where we've come to. We're, it's like a reality TV show now. And I think we're getting what we deserve in some ways. And uh, laughed through a lot of it. Probably should have been crying. And I remember driving home thinking of what John MacArthur said one time. That if tomorrow everybody in America started telling the truth, the whole system would collapse. And I just felt like I needed a bath. And I woke up the next morning and I read my Bible and I thought, oh my gosh, God, you are amazing. Somehow you've allowed us into this thing where we know the way, the truth, and the life. That the Bible is life-giving and, it, and when I read it, I'm reminded of what the psalmist said in that wisdom psalm, in the first psalm, where he talks about that we who know the truth, who meditate in God's ways, who respect God's ways, that we're going to be like trees planted by living waters. It's a beautiful metaphor. The metaphor means that our roots go deep down into the wisdom of God. Now, here's the way the Hebrews approach life. They didn't believe in the school of hard knocks. They believed that you could learn by those who went before you. They believed that you could learn by the written word of God. And that was called wisdom. The Hebrew word means the skill in living life. And that a life well lived was a life rooted and grounded in God's wisdom and that there was a payoff for that wisdom because Psalm 1 says that everything that man does prospers. Psalm 112 says there's a blessed condition in everything we do as believers. And, and, and here's what I want to develop this morning and I want this to sink in deep into your spirit. The reason why there's a payoff of serving God is because God is a blessing God. I want to say that again. God is a blessing God. And if I was one of those preachers that made you repeat things, we would all say God is a blessing God. 
Turn to your neighbor and say, God is a blessing God. God is a blessing God. If you don't believe that, somebody's put strychnine in your well. There is a toxicity in your spirit, and I don't know if it's from legalism, bad teaching, bad experiences, but so many people in this world, so many people not in this room, believe that God's an angry God, God's a condemning God, God's going to get even with us. But over and over, you know, remember I said you don't have to go far in Scripture, God is a blessing God. Later today, go back and read Numbers chapter 6. Israel's wandering in the wilderness. God, in his benevolence, gives them the manna. He gives them water out of the rock. And Moses has delivered the Ten Commandments, but he's also built this tabernacle exactly the way God wanted it built. And there's an evening and a morning sacrifice, and it's portable. And everywhere the camp moves, the tabernacle moves, and it's right in the center because God wants to be at the center of our lives. And Moses sets up the priesthood, and one of God's final instructions to Moses is to command Aaron and his sons, the priests, that every time God's people gather, he said, I want you to bless them with this blessing. God said, here's how you're going to speak to my children. The Lord bless you and keep you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance and give you peace. And it says, so they shall put my name on the children of Israel, and God said it, and it's emphatic, and I will bless them. God said, I'll bless them. He's a blessing God. God said, every time they come together, every time they gather, whether it's morning, evening, or night, whenever my people are together, I want them to be encouraged, reminded, and reassured that I have their best intentions in mind. Blessedness is the preferred state of life. And again, it's not all material. It supersedes all that in some ways. It's a state of being. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said uh, in a series of blessings, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He even said there was a condition of blessedness when we're persecuted for righteousness sake because so were the prophets. Those who weren't worthy to live in this world were persecuted the same way. There is a blessedness that comes from that. There's a pastor I admire. I read all his books, listen to his podcasts. And he talked about when he was raising his two children, he had a boy and a girl. He had a practice every night of the week he was home when he wasn't traveling. He would go into his son's room and they would read a Bible story and he would tuck him in and he would say to his son, son, if I could line up all the boys in the world, in this room, I would still choose you as my son. And then he would go into his daughter's room, read her a Bible story, tuck her in, and say to his daughter, if I could take all the girls, line them up in this room, I would choose you for my daughter. Can you imagine what it's like to hear that? Can you imagine every night being reassured of your father's love? Now, some of you, it was worth coming to church because you have kids that are young, and you can make that practice. I don't think that pastor will mind you stealing that from him. And you could change a kid's life. And God says the same thing about us. I want them to know they are a blessed people. Now, what we need to understand is God's blessing comes upon us through obedience. To those who love his commands, we just read verses 2 and 3. To those who, who love God's ways. And what God has set up in his love are two roads. 
A road of blessing and a road of cursing. Jesus said there is a narrow road that leads to life and there is a wide road and so many are on it and they're living by the natural mind and the ways of the world and it's going to lead to death. Maybe not now, but someday they're going to reap the death of living those ways. And so Psalm 1 and Psalm 112 set up these roads whereby God has marked out a way for each and every one of us, a road of obedience and blessedness, where he wants to pour into our life abundance. Now, it's not pain-free. It's not care-free. It's not devoid of trials and tribulations. But what God's saying is, I want to be intimate with you. I want to bless you. I want to be in a relationship where you understand that daily, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that I have a blueprint for your life, and that blueprint is for you to prosper and to be blessed. So for the time that remains, I want to walk you through what blessedness looks like, and I want to talk to you about the payoff of serving God. And I think there's four payoffs, and we'll look at it through this psalm. If you're taking notes, the first payoff of serving God is prosperity. Prosperity. Look at verse 2 and 3 again. His descendants will be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house. And his righteousness endures forever. Now the Jews believed that material wealth was a sign of God's blessing. Now it got them in the end because even when they were serving other gods and not walking with God, they would look around and they would look at material blessing and say, wow, God must be pleased with us. They didn't understand sowing and reaping. But they believed that material blessing was a sign of God's wealth. Here's why. If you study ancient cultures, even up to Greece and Rome, almost every culture built their infrastructure by pilfering and raiding other countries. So you would come in like the Babylonians did to Jerusalem. You'd take all the temple goods, all the, all the gold, silver, and you would take it to your country, and that's how they built infrastructure. There was no Steve Jobs, no Bill Gates, okay? But the Hebrews were different. When God brought them in the land, he said, you're going to possess this land. It's flowing with milk and honey. He said, I've given you the power to create wealth. And they believed that material blessing was a sign of God's favor. Um, Deuteronomy 28. Moses says, if you obey the Lord your God, all these things will happen to you. Blessed you'll be in the city, Blessed you'll be in the country. Blessed will be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, the increase of your herds, the increase of your flocks. Blessed will be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be when you come in and come out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise up against you to cease. He will command the blessing of your storehouses, which you set before him. And he will bless you in the land which he has given you. The Lord will open to you his good treasure, the heavens, to give you the rain, the, the early and the latter rain, in its season. You shall lend to nations and not borrow, and the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You shall be above only and not beneath. If you heed the commandments of the Lord your God, which I have commanded you this day, and serve no other gods. So naturally, Israel saw material wealth as a sign of God's blessing. Now, we live in a day where in the Christian church, there is what's called the prosperity doctrine. The faith movement, the name and claim it movement, health and wealth gospel, 
Uh, I got saved into that. I was into it about four years. It is alive and well today. It has a different veneer, and I don't want to name names, but it's out there, and you probably have seen it on television. Um, it goes something like this, that we are the king's kids. And therefore, God has laid up the wealth of the unrighteous for us, and if we just speak words of faith and believe, uh, God will make us healthy, wealthy, and wise. The pastors and leaders of this movement drive Rolls Royces, uh, Mercedes, wear $3,000 suits, because let's face it, if they really believe what they're teaching, they should be the beneficiaries of it. They almost never mention Job, Jesus having nowhere to lay his head, or Paul saying he abounded and abased. They use what's called concordance theology. They'll take something like Psalm 112 and then go through the Bible looking at every place where it says God will bless us in material ways. Their creedal text is 3 John, this small book with a little greeting that says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. And they build an entire doctrine around that saying that you should always be wealthy if you're serving God. Now, forget the fact that that's improper exegesis, which is the interpretation of Scripture. It doesn't even pass the logic test. And I have to admit, you know, three or four years I was in this. The logic test is, this is a standard greeting. Where John is saying, I want your, I want your life to prosper, I want you to be in health and prosper as your soul prospers. Now, if you know anything about your soul, material things don't do anything for your soul. In fact, they fight against your soul. That's why Timothy had to warn people who were rich in this age not to trust in uncertain riches, but trust in the living God. There is a fight. Jesus said where your treasure is, your heart would be. And he said some are going to gain the entire world materially, and they're going to lose their soul. Money fights against the soul. So that can't be what the Bible's speaking here. But there is a grain of truth. There is a rich nugget here and that God does want to prosper us. We are to be blessed materially. David said, I've been young and old and I've never seen two things, the righteous forsaken or God's seed begging bread. Jesus said, God, we should pray to give us our daily bread and the things we need, right? So if God prospers us and he prospers obedience, how do God's children become materially prosperous? Well, it's a lot different than the faith teachers teach. It's not give $100 and God will give you the hundredfold return. He's not a celestial slot machine in the sky. It's not the way it works. You don't give to God today and then you win the publisher's sweepstakes on Tuesday. It's not how it works. Money doesn't fall from the sky. When I look at the Bible, prosperity is ours for a few reasons. Number one, this will sell very few books. We go to work every day. Wow, that's a novel concept. Read the book of Proverbs. It talks about hard work, diligence, being industrious, rising early, using your gifts. Warns about laziness and idle hands. One of the beautiful things about a Christian is you realize that God has ordained work for us. He's given us skill. It's a way we find uh, our way in life, satisfaction, and also the way we make a living. Proverbs says a lot about saving money. 
talks about the ant who stores up in lean times and, you know, so many other proverbs. Then for many of us, there was this new idea of giving and being generous towards God's kingdom. That if we bring the tithe into the storehouse, he would open the windows of heaven and pour us out a blessing. Jesus said, give, it'll be given to you, good measure, pressed down, running over. Men will start giving to you. Paul said we learn about giving and receiving. We get into this generosity thing with God where we give, he gives, and it's a beautiful way to live. And then did you ever think of this? Did you ever think about how prosperous you are? Because you don't buy cigarettes and alcohol and you don't gamble or go to strip clubs or casinos. You don't, all don't do that, right? <laughs> Just being sure. In our book drive, we had way too many boxes that were wine boxes where the books were put in. But I'll leave that for another day. <laughs> so God blesses us. Wealth and prosperity, the psalm says, will be in our house. Now, blessings aren't always material. It's not always dollars and cents. Look back at verse 2. It says his descendants will be mighty on the earth. There will be a posterity. You know, when we look at Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and even some athletes, some of them make so much money, we talk about generational wealth, right? It'll pass through the ages. And I like to think of generational wealth here as I look at families. You know, I was raised in a family where I never heard one person pray. You know, we went to a local church. Nobody prayed, nobody talked about God. I never heard a Bible verse. Now, my parents loved me, did the best they could, but I think how that ship has turned around with my family. Think about my kids going to bed, uh, reading books of the Bible with us and taking them through C.S. Lewis material and things like that and all the things they've been exposed to. I think of all the things that they've been shielded from that we were exposed to at an early age. I look at my grandchildren now and I, I just sit there and I say, God, you're amazing. This far outweighs any material goods I could ever have, that, that the ship has turned around and that for future generations that Christ is going to be at the center of our homes. Now, look, I understand. Kids can be prodigals. Some of you have prodigals. My grandkids can be prodigals. My kids can be prodigals. That, that's not on us, okay? Adam and Eve raised Cain and Abel, okay? Samson was raised by godly parents. They raised him as a Nazarite. So we pray for prodigals. But it still doesn't nullify the fact that we have this posterity and generations and there's a wonderful payoff in that we have transferred the truth to another generation. So the payoff of serving God is prosperity. It's prosperity in, in financial ways. You know, if you manage things well, it's prosperity in family life. Again, not devoid of trials and tribulations. But the rule of thumb, the payoff of serving God, is you will be blessed in many different ways. The second payoff of serving God is a new character. Look at verse 4. Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. He's gracious, full of compassion and righteous. A good man deals graciously and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he will never be shaken. I look at these verses about our light shining in a dark world. One of the first things that God does 
when you become a believer and begin to read his word, is he changes your heart. It's almost instantaneous. Remember Zacchaeus? That cruel tax collector who instantaneously wanted to give a lot of his wealth away? The new man, the metamorphosis that takes place as we become gracious and generous, courageous. We're aware of compassion and justice. And you saw in the video today, if it's October, that means it's compassion and justice at Calvary. We take almost a whole month and we look at issues like sex trafficking, people that don't have access to clean drinking water. Why is there poverty and racism in our country? This year we're going to look at the sanctity of human life. And I think before we were a Christian, our worldview was, if you were in any of those categories, sucks to be you, right? It's the way a lot of people live. They might not say it, but they live that way. Watch TV, think it's horrific, and then just move on with their life. But as Christians, we get burdened with this because God's burdened with it. And for 12 years, we've been trying to show you that, that the church can make a difference, that we can let God break our hearts and we can come up with creative ways, not to solve all the world's problems, but like Jesus going in and healing one man, we can make a difference for the few. And I think the payoff of serving God is we become light in a very dark world because of character, because of what God has done in our hearts. And I know so many of your stories, so many of you in the last 12 years have gone to places to serve. You've done it on your own. You've done it with us. God somehow has given you a passion to bring light into a dark place. And we'll keep talking about this until God takes us home. The third payoff of serving God may be the greatest. Look at verse 7. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. This is what's on your handout. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He will not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. Now, do I need to tell anyone that we're living in a day of evil tidings? You know, the news is really the bad news, if you want to think about it. And they have this new thing now. Every time you watch the news, it's breaking news. The whole news now, breaking news. And then when there's something like... Um, the election or, you know, some of the racial tensions we're seeing, they spend the whole news on just that one thing, which means, is there not any other news? But this is breaking news every day. Tornadoes, you know, murders, and now we get push notifications on our phones about school shootings and molestation, things it would have taken months and years to hear about about 100 years ago. And evil tidings are a part of every day for all of us. Now, I pastor a church, so I hear it even more. Because in a congregation this size, someone is always sick. Someone's always in financial trouble. People are always dying. And we live in a day of evil tidings. Though we have the highest standard of living in the world, the stress of Americans is at an all-time high. And yet here the psalmist says we can survive evil tidings if our hearts are steadfastly fixed on the Lord. This is very important. It's very important because there are so many believers who say, oh, I love God. And they, 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 they come to worship. They love hanging at the church. They go to concerts. Yeah, I love God. And then a minute a trial comes, they disintegrate. They just wash away. 
I've watched it happen so many times. Tim Keller says it's one thing to say you love the Lord, but if you don't pray, he questions how much you love the Lord. Jesus said, Sermon on the Mount, this is the way he ended it. He said, some of you are going to hear what I say, and you're going to build a house on rock. Some of you are going to hear what I say, and you're going to build a house on sand. Both houses look the same. The only way you find the difference is when trials come. The problem today is too many Christians love the Lord, and I really do believe they do, but they still love the world. Jesus says, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Now, let's unpack that a little bit. Um, We have to be in the world, Jesus said, but not of it. We don't retreat. We don't start a monastery. We're smack middle in the world so we can influence it. We can be where the gates of hell are. But we have to be in the world, but not of the world. That means we don't love the things of the world. Why? Because the things of the world are on the wide road and they're leading to destruction. Ravi Zacharias summed it up best when he said we need to be world-affirming and world-denying at the same time. In other words, we can affirm the world that our Father has given us. You know, we go watch an orchestra. Man, that's wonderful, the beautiful people made in God's image, the beautiful music. That is world-affirming. But at the same time, we got to deny the systems of this world that, again, are wreaking havoc in people's souls. But too many people love the world, too many of God's people. And when trials come, like the soils, the parable of the soils, they just melt away. Their whole world crumbles. There's a scene in the Old Testament where Jacob is very old, and he's blessing the 12 tribes of Israel, his sons. And uh, it was a patriarchal blessing. It was very common in that time. And it's a wonderful study, by the way, if you go back and read it. Because Jacob's blessing, actually, uh, if you read the rest of the Bible, it came out exactly as he prophesied. And he starts, as he should have, with Reuben, his firstborn. He said, Reuben, you're my firstborn, but you will not excel because you are unstable as water. You know what Jacob was saying? Reuben, you're my firstborn. I poured everything into you. You have the birthright. You have all the talent. You have all the ability. But you're unstable as water. What made Reuben unstable? He never fixed his heart on God. And I think so many Christians are in that place today. They, they don't see God as a blessing God because they've never fixed their heart in God. They've never gone all in with God. They like to be on the periphery of Christianity, but when push comes to shove, they choose the ways of the world and they respect the ways of the world over the ways of God. Is your heart fixed on the Lord this morning? No matter what the course of this world says, do you stick to the things of God? We live in an age, probably started in the 60s, where probably the the way that this was really attacked was in the sexual revolution. And if you look back at the sexual revolution, I mean, it almost looks puritanical compared to what we're going through today. 40, 50 years later, uh, the sexual revolution was supposed to give us so much freedom, we don't even know what a male and a female is anymore. That's how far we've come. And then the idea that you will be chaste until marriage, that's not puritanical. That is like, you know, get the straight jet. Like, these people are insane. G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors, 
was an atheist, became a Christian. He said, the more I considered Christianity, the more I found that while it had established a rule and order, and by the way, we like rule and order in every other area of life, the chief aim of that order was to give room, listen to this, for good things to run wild. Isn't that amazing? This is why John Piper coined the phrase Christian hedonism, to delight ourselves in God. God wants good things to run wild. And so Chesterton said, when it comes to sex, he said, I could never mix in the common murmur of the rising generation against monogamy because no restriction on sex seems so odd and unexpected as sex itself. Keeping to one woman is a small price for so much as seeing one woman. To complain that I could only be married once was like complaining that I had only been born once. By the way, this is deep. It's going to take you a while to get this. It was incommensurate with the terrible excitement of which one was talking. It showed not on exaggerated sensibility to sex, but to curious insensibility to it. A man is a fool who complains that he cannot enter Eden by five gates at once. Polygamy is a lack of the realization of sex. It's like a man plucking five pears Mere absence of mind. Now, if you can't figure out what Chesterton's saying, let me put it this way. You know, God has given me two legs. I have a femur, a tibia, I can't see them. But I don't get up in the morning wondering if they'll take me where I need to go, right? I stand on these legs, I sit on these legs. The idea is they have a function, they hold up my frame. They have a purpose, they take me where I need to go. The rule and order God has given us is to help us go and do what we need to do. It's an outlet of freedom. But again, there's so many of God's people who are holding on to the ways of the world, not trusting God. The final payoff. Touched on it earlier. Verse 9, he is dispersed abroad, he is given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. The final payoff of serving God is that he makes you generous. He makes you generous. When a person comes to Christ, we come with closed fists. And the change that God brings is an open hand. And because God is a blessing God, we start to realize that these hands were made to bless. That these hands could change a human life, that we could be generous with the things we have, that we could hug people and touch people and change their lives. The reason why generosity is so important and the reason why it's a payoff of serving God and the reason why it comes into our life is because God was generous with us. We who were sinners and condemned to death, in the day that you sin, you will surely die. God said no. I so love the world, I will give my only son that whoever believes in him will have life everlasting. And I didn't send my son in the world to condemn the world that every person might have life. God, who could have condemned us, said, no, I will be generous. And I will give the best I have. And when generosity like that hits your spirit, hands open wide. God never made hands to pull triggers and kill people. 
God never made hands to curse people and take lives. He made these hands to bless. Because he's a blessing God. And he longs to bless each and every day. Now, because he's a loving father, he can't bless disobedience. The prodigal son had to be sent out of the house. God was the father, sent him out of the house. But the payoff of serving God is manyfold. Now, there's a problem. It's my problem, it's your problem. It was Asaph's problem in Psalm 73. When he said, my foot almost slipped. I almost threw the white towel and I wasn't even going to serve God anymore. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There's no pain in their death. Things seem to be easy for them. You all ever go through that? I go through that all the time as a young Christian. Send my kids to Christian school. I literally, and I know I sound like an old fogey, I literally had holes in my shoes to send my kids to Christian school. Kept my wife home. Drove beat up cars. Had cars with no reverse, no gas gauge. I mean, uh, just craziness, right? And the people next door, you know, they're going to Disney World and they sleep in on Sunday and then, you know, my car breaks down. And you're like, God, what are you doing here? My foot almost slipped, Asaph said. He said, until I went into the house of God and I understood their end. By the way, he didn't say until I went on the internet and listened to a sermon. Jesus' custom was to be in the synagogue every week. Until I went in the house of God and everything started to make sense and I understood their ways. I told you this was a psalm of contrast. Look at what it says in the last verse. It said, the wicked will see it and be grieved. They will gnash their teeth and the desire of the wicked will perish. Psalm 1 said, they are like chaff the wind blows away. No remembrance. When it's all said and done, nobody's going to remember the monuments to men, the skyscrapers, the wonderful stadiums. All the things man has done will perish. And yet the beautiful thing here, and it's all through the psalm, is that what we have done, you and me, is everlasting. It's everlasting. Paul said one day in heaven there's going to be all our works before God and some will become wood, hay, and stubble that's going to be burned and then others are going to be precious gold. That not only are you and I going to live forever but the things we have done are going to live forever in all eternity. They're before God's eyes even now. I said when I was a younger believer I used to go through that. Uh, now I'm at the age where I'm going to funerals and uh, 25 year reunions, Right? And I'm driving up to my 25-year reunion for basketball, and uh, I said to my wife, you know, just drop me off in the back, because this is so ironic. When I went to school, I had broken down cars, and now I've got a broken down car here, and I don't want anybody to see it. Just drop me off here, and I'll walk up. And uh, of course, I get there, and all my teammates have sure homes, and are driving Escalades, and as an older Christian, I didn't envy them. I felt sorry for them. Because I sat at that dinner and thought of all that God had done. And I thought of his faithfulness. And I thought if you stripped everything away, I'd still live the greatest life. And like when Jesus turned the water into wine, he saved the best for last. 
And I'm so looking forward to eternity and all that God has. It took me a while to learn God is a blessing God. It took me a while to learn it because of the way I was raised. I used to think if things were going good, I used to tell my wife this, if things were going good, watch out. Bad things are coming. Now, it's nowhere in the Bible, right? The Bible says you're going to go through seasons of life, but there's nowhere in the Bible where it says, watch out when things are good. And then I read this book, The Legacy of Divorce, a 25-year landmark study where it says children of divorce think bad things are happening when, in times of good because somewhere along the line, the rug was pulled out from you. Surprise, surprise, daddy's not here anymore. And it took me a long time to believe that wasn't the way God was. When I got saved into the prosperity doctrine, to get out of that, I fell into legalism, which is worse, by the way. At least in the prosperity doctrine, you're believing God for something. In legalism, you think God's against you. So it's taken me so long to come to a place where, oh my gosh, God wants to bless me. And if I just open my eyes, I can see his blessing. It's not always material. And I think like so many of you, I can tell countless stories of things God has done and love taps along the way where he says, you know what, I'm here. And I know your desires. And I'm here to provide for you. God is a blessing, God. And Psalm 112 says, if you will walk in his ways, if you will take the path of wisdom, these blessings will follow you all of your days. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your encouragement. We know that faith comes by hearing. And we thank you that you are good and benevolent God, that you numbered our ways before we were born, that every hair in our head is numbered. God, you are so good and so kind. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, Paul's gonna lead us in one last song. And uh, why don't you all stand? And then I'll come back and have a few closing words. Feel free to put your hands together, be the band. Sing together. We stand in.